Welcome to The Ringer Podcast Network. It's Liz Kelly. This week, we launched a new show on the network called The Ringer Fantasy Football Show. Coming from the guys who brought you the Fantasy Football Podcast, Danny Heifetz, Danny Kelly, and Craig Korolbeck will guide you through the fantasy football season, providing analysis on big picture conversations like weekly matchups, trades, and daily fantasy. The show will run every Monday and Wednesday throughout the rest of the summer, and we'll be helping you through the regular season as well. So follow and listen to the first episode of the Ringer Fantasy Football Podcast out now for free on Spotify. Hello, media consumers. You've got the press box. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of the Ringer here. We got a lot of great stuff for you today. We'll answer a mega dose of listener mail including the question, what happens when you dream about the press box? We'll be joined by one of our favorite Ringer teammates, Jordan Ritter-Khan, who will tell us about his new book and reporting at the Turkey-Syria border. All that plus David guesses a strain pun headline and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, let's begin here. We're in one of those times in American life when we are surrounded by conspiracy theories. You sent me a list earlier in the week, and I think we actually had to trim it <laughs> considerably just so it would uh it wouldn't flow over one segment uh the reasons are pretty obvious you have the instigators donald trump and his social media pals and then you have the subjects coronavirus the protests the jeffrey epstein case russians the elections the biggest of these at least in november 3rd terms is QAnon. Uh, if you don't know what the QAnon conspiracy is, the New York Times describes it as a convoluted pro-Trump conspiracy theory about a deep state of child molesting Satanist traitors plotting against the president. Now, remember, that is the conservative New York Times description. Would you say, David, that QAnon is the biggest thing that people like our parents <laughs> don't know about in the world right now? Yes, uh, I think that's exactly right. Although I should say that it is creeping in to, I mean, I don't know that my mom knows about it, nor do I even want to broach the subject, but. <laughs> not, but a, our, not a great, not, not something great to talk about around the dinner table if we ringer, even had a dinner table. Yeah, our, our ringer coworker, uh, Roger Sherman, who is a uh, an all-time just Twitter ace, just strikeout artist, uh, tweeted some i forgot what the tweet was but like the q and on there's a q portion of it that was like the tertiary part of the joke and it got a bunch of, it got a great reaction and i remember just looking at like the, the you know the retweets escalating and i was like i guess you could if q if, if we are familiar enough with the concept of q that it can be a secondary or tertiary part of a tweet a humor tweet then maybe it's way more widespread you know, it's, it's better more widespread knowledge than i was aware of yeah, I like the Roger Sherman tweet test just to determine <laughs> how much traction these things are really getting. There are more than a dozen QAnon candidates in the election right now, even after many were defeated in the primaries. Joe Ray Perkins, the U.S. Senate nominee in Oregon, has said, I stand with Q in the team. Other candidates are yeah. QAnon curious. Lauren Boebert, who knocked off a five-term congressman from Colorado in the primary, has said, everything I've heard of Q, I hope this is real. Angela Stanton King, House candidate Georgia, has tweeted the Q hashtag, trust the plan. No, that is not a Sam Hinkie hashtag. That is a QAnon thing. Uh, Jeff Sessions, David, recently defeated in Alabama, tweeted a QAnon meme. The head of New York City's police union, you and I were talking about this, appeared on television with a QAnon mug in the background. Yeah. 
and I think even if you're level-headed about this, we're, we're, we're now getting to a very, very weird, weird place in American, if not in American life, at least in Republican politics. Right. Okay. This is maybe a rabbit hole, but if our parents in general are unaware of this, the existence of Q, some, I mean, their contemporaries aren't necessarily, but the people who are Q fanatics, I think, are just one step up the internet evolutionary chain from the hypothetical parents we're discussing. I mean, you have to be pretty (laughs) remarkably computer illiterate to even give this the time of day for a second, right? I mean, I think you or I both know how the internet and the world at large in the modern age works, which is to say, if you are a well-placed person with some secret information that you want to get out to the world you just start an anonymous Twitter account and say the thing that you know, right? You don't, you don't, you don't speak in vagaries on an anonymous message board for fear of your personal safety. Nobody really cares about that. The only thing that vagaries are good for are like covering your ass or lying, right? I mean, there's, unless you're trying to confuse someone or preemptively excuse yourself for for being wrong. Look at the way that people are were covering the Washington football team news before it came out like we talked about last episode yeah. all these, that's when you use vagaries online right not when you have great actual intel that you need to get out to the world it's right it's this it, the whole thing is so silly to believe it for a second is just i mean it's kind of it's kind of wild that this is a thing and that i mean that the, the rise of the tea party candidates i think probably were i mean however long ago that was probably should have been the siren that that went on. I mean, it's 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 a very sim- it seems to be a very similar talent base here. Uh, although you could make a little bit more of a straight faced case for the Tea Party, but oh yeah, the fact that a new cause arose, its fan base was dwelling on some like relatively new part of the internet, and the candidates themselves were not just interesting, uh, unusual, but were also seemingly very uh, i mean had some sort of legitimate place in the republican party it was alarming then it's even more alarming now and what a headache for national republicans new york times notes this republican leaders cannot afford to turn off voters who share those conspiratorial views if they hope to retain the senate and retake the house (laughs) so it's not just the inconvenience (laughs) of having oh wow our house candidate is a is a QAnon person it's we cannot make the people reading these things on the internet mad. Well, the, dem- the Democrats are worrying about figuring out where the common ground on like universal health care is. And this is going to be like a deal breaker for like half the party, according to some people. And uh, the other half is like, what? where can we find common ground on like, does this massive conspiracy that literally doesn't <laughs> exist exist? Is JFK Jr. alive, right? Is like, what yeah, is exactly. The, what, what is the middle ground position on this that uh, Joe Biden could possibly take to satisfy everybody? Big news this week, David, was that Twitter bans 7,000 Q supporting accounts and is apparently trying to limit the reach of a bunch of others. But a uh, friend of the press box, Will Summer, writes in the Daily Beast, in the real world, meanwhile, QAnon isn't concerned about being banned. Its promoters earn invites to the White House. As the president retweets QAnon followers and Trump social media chief Dan Scavino post a cartoon from avowed QAnon supporter Ben Garrison. Uh, Eric Trump recently posted a QAnon graphic, Summer writes, with a giant Q on it, dot, dot, dot. Former Trump national security advisor Michael Flynn, and man, this was amazing, recently filmed himself taking a QAnon oath with his family. 
thrilling QAnon followers desperate for proof that their dream of mass executions will come true. So that's QAnon. Then, David, there's Chuck Woolery. <laughs> but moving on, are there any <laughs> 80s game show hosts we can tie into this? What a segue. Yes. Back on July 12th, Chuck Woolery was trending, which always gets our attention. When we mentioned this name mm-hmm. to Chris Almeida the other day, we got a what is word perfect style reaction. <laughs> so just in case you don't know, Chuck Woolery was the host of the 80s, 90s game show Love Connection, which was sort of like scrolling through Tinder in a doctor's waiting room. Am I getting am I getting the ambiance <laughs> of that show right? Here's the opening theme of Love That's Connection. That's pretty good. Welcome to Love Connection, where old-fashioned romance meets modern-day technology. Where you hear all the intimate details of a first date. Our parents' generation can hear a Beatles song and flash back to their childhood. You and I are cursed to hear the love connection theme and flash back to our childhood. Anyway, Chuck Woolery has refashioned himself as a rabid right winger on Twitter. And this was the tweet that got everybody's attention. The most outrageous lies are the ones about COVID-19. Everyone is lying. The CDC, media, Democrats, our doctors, not all but most, (laughs) like how he he built that in there, that we are told to trust. I think it's all about the election and keeping the economy from coming back, which is about the election. I'm sick of it. It was so conspiratorial, David, that it got a retweet from President Trump. And then (laughs) four days later, Wool retweeted, my son tested positive for the virus. And I feel for those suffering and especially for those who have lost loved ones. He then deactivated his account. An associate tells CNN Chuck's son is fine and asymptomatic. I mean, does it help the argument that there's no place for right wing voices in Hollywood? This is the uh, Chuck Woolery is your paragon of of right wing voices. I mean, in Hollywood, is is it because it's easy for me to look at him and say, you know, you know, if if you're, I mean, if you go from being Chuck Willery, who in our minds is relatively famous, to a guy who's like, you know, doing podcast, doing podcast with Rachel Bruno or a Newt Gingrich, I guess there was a, was a recent one. That's a that's a high point. Then there's not much to really be said. But listen, if you are an outspoken voice in Republican or, or conservatism and libertarianism and everything else. You know, I guess it's a good thing when your bullshit gets proven wrong by reality in like a moment's time. But it's really sad that had to happen to his son for him to like, well, it's sad that happened to his son. It's sad that it had to happen to his son for him to like understand that there is a reality that exists outside of his foil hat. Finally, and most grimly, David, we had an attack on the family of federal judge Esther Salas. Last Sunday, a man pretending to be a delivery man comes up to the North Brunswick, New Jersey home of Esther Salas. The man shoots and kills Daniel Anderl, Salas's son, and injures her husband, Mark Anderl. Salas was in the basement at the time, so she wasn't hurt. Salas had just been assigned a case relating to Jeffrey Epstein. So naturally, people's minds went there a few seconds later. Uh, the suspect is Roy Den Hollander, who police found dead of an apparent suicide. Den Hollander, the New York Times says, is a self-described anti-feminist lawyer who flooded the courts with seemingly frivolous lawsuits. Uh, Sued various nightclubs, David, claiming they violated the 14th Amendment by having ladies' nights discounts for women. Uh, He called Esther Salas lazy and incompetent. 
in a quote self-published 1700 page book and now the fbi is exploring whether he might be responsible for a similar killing out here on the west coast a men's rights lawyer who was killed in san bernardino county california uh also by someone posing as a fedex delivery man so there's that one too just in terms of um i guess conspiracies that went off to a very very weird place well uh, two things. One, not to make light of the situation because it's, it's a real tragedy, but that's a uh, well, not to make light of the situation. But I would hate to be the you know assistant editor at the New York Times that was tasked with reading that seventeen hundred page self published book. Um, you'd probably go crazy. Second of all, what a career this man has staked out for himself. I mean, just I'm all about passion projects, but this is just the saddest thing I've ever heard ladies night yeah was where you were planning your flag because yeah. women got a discount and you didn't and there's and there i saw a reporting that his beef with the guy in california who apparently killed was that they had started a they, they had filed a suit against the draft being men only and they had left him out of the of the whatever the attorney pool and he felt that he had been sidelined and that was where the beef began with them so anyway but I should say for listeners, this 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 originally made the list of conspiracy corner when it first happened because of the um, the the uncertainty surrounding at the time the Epstein part of it, yes, and then also there was the the, the judge was apparently invo- involved in the Deutsche Bank thing, and at the same time there was a there was a rumors of a suicide of someone who had been tangentially involved in Trump's accounts. There, there's so much conspiracy theory theorizing going on. And I guess it's a good example of it happening on both sides because, you know, the, the liberals were very interested in how this tied to Trump and Jeffrey Epstein and Trump by proxy and everything else through there. I mean, at that point, too. Um, but even setting that aside, this is we talked about QAnon. We talked we talked about this stuff with some frequency. You know, men's rights activism may not sound like a conspiracy theory and may not by definition be one. But this is what happens when you just bathe yourself in online inanity in the way and and for some of these totally misbegotten wrong side of history sorry to use that phrase causes um and it's something we should all be wary of and 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 but it's something that we should not be afraid to point out when we see this sort of um agitation we see this sort of activation going on right before our eyes and uh this is you know obviously an extreme example but the fear is that some of these causes are made up of extreme examples. You know, I'm not saying a QAnon candidate is going to go out and kill anybody over their cause, but they're already exist- exhibiting extreme, extreme behaviors in any number of ways. So, um, you know, this is this is what it is, man. It's a tragedy. All right, David, let us gently step to the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. Big news from tonight's baseball restart, David. Mm. A couple of seconds before we started recording this at the Nationals game in Washington, Dr. Anthony Fauci threw out the first pitch. It was not pretty. Let's just say that we're, <laughs> we're grateful for Dr. Anthony Fauci's contributions to infectious diseases. Uh, he <laughs> will probably not be in an MLB rotation anytime soon, but it was an overworked Twitter joke to write, <laughs> of course, he'll try to flatten the curve. And by the way, that was extremely overworked did you happen to see the picture david of mark zuckerberg surfing in hawaii with his face (laughs) slathered in sunscreen i've been busy but yes i did see that 
I saw multiple dueling pics of Zuckerberg and Cesar Romero as the Joker surfing <laughs> from that weird Batman episode mm-hmm. <laughs> about surfing. But it was an overworked Twitter joke to quote the social network and write, you know what's cool? A billion SPF. Thanks to <laughs> Riles McGiles. That's fantastic. And this tweet was pretty awful. We lost Congressman and civil rights leader John Lewis last week. And Marco Rubio, senator from Florida, tweeted a tribute to Lewis, which was Marco Rubio standing with another recently deceased black congressman, Elijah Cummings of Maryland. Extremely unfortunate mistake. It was an overworked Twitter joke Mm. to post a photo of Rubio and Ivanka with the caption, here's Rubio and Kaylee McEnany, thanks to Sugar (laughs) Lemon. If you couldn't come up with a better face palm for Republicans and civil rights than what actually happened... Congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. In the notebook dump, Mr. Shoemaker, let us do some listener mail. You and I had a big convo on Monday about Fox News' Chris Wallace and his TV interview affect. Well, a few people wrote in and said, hey, did you guys know that his dad is CBS News legend Mike Wallace? Yeah, we know. And, and, le- and let me tell you why we didn't mention it. Chris Wallace is 72 years old. He's been on TV for almost 50 years. Yeah. And at some point, I think you earn the right to be judged as your own person, right? And not your father's son. Yeah. I th- yes. And by the way, it came up. It, I think we came up in our conversation before, but it certainly came popped into my head as we were discussing it on the podcast. But here's the thing. When he got the job, even when he got the job on Fox, he had been doing this for a long time. People yes. said the word nepotism still rang in the air when he got this gig. Right. And in the in the intervening period. No matter what you think about Chris Wallace, politics or presentation or anything else, he's he's proven all that to be ridiculous, right? I mean, that's just so unnecessary. And so, you know, if it bore passing mention, okay, but like that's it's he's been at it for so long, doing this real legitimate job in a very real way. So come on. Yeah, I had Christopher Buckley on the other day, and you'll notice I did not mention the words William F. Buckley, his dad. Until I wanted to get him to tell a story about dropping acid. It, it's not the right even it's not even the right comparison, by the way, for Chris Wallace. He his interview style is much smoother and and more low-key than his dad's. Anyway, just thank you for everyone who tweeted that because we know his dad is Mike Wallace. This is from the Athletics Eric Kareen, David. What does it say about me that I had a dream last night that Brian was interviewing me in person along with Chris? And that you were both allowed in Canada for some reason. Should I stop listening to the press box while washing dishes? <laughs> oh, I'm not. I don't have to actually answer the question. What does it say about me? Do I? I don't think I'm qualified. Uh, I'm sort of relieved that other people are having dreams about the press box because I know when I have an interview like scheduled the next day. Not not so much with Jordan Con today, but like. You know, when we have one of these people on, I often have like a weird, you know, 10 second dream about me, like having no questions for them or just add, just like <laughs> basically the, you know, didn't bring, didn't do your homework, didn't know the test was scheduled dream. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, so join the club, Eric Kareen, and, and please keep listening to the press box while you watch. And then, pictures. and then during every interview, do you get the momentary impulse to, re- to mention to them that you had a dream about this interview the night before? <laughs> it's usually my lead question. <laughs> I had the weirdest dream last night, Mr. Buckley. Uh, this is from Nick Field. Are the protests in Portland suffering from being on the West Coast? Seems like it took a long time to get correspondence on the ground out there. I imagine if everything happened on the East Coast, it would have been a much bigger deal much quicker. What do you think about that? I think, um, yes, that is undoubtedly true. 
undoubtedly true, sorry. And I and also I I do think that there was a sort of national exhale as sort of the first wave of protests that were happening and occupying, you know, East Coast cities, I guess I should say, uh, were sort of winding down, that there was a feeling that the you know other ones were winding down too. I don't know. I, but it's a great point. I mean, and, and, and I, but I do, I do think that it being in on the West Coast and being in Portland, um, despite it being a major city, certainly has affected the coverage. I agree. And I'm always amazed as a relatively new West Coaster, only about five years out here, just how how much less everything gets. There's like a West Coast, you know, discount of like 30 percent and it could be <laughs> the exact same story. There was a headline early in the in the protest from the L.A. Times, big front page headline that was all about looting. If that had been in The New York Times, there would have been like 19 think pieces about that by the end of the day. Yeah. And as far as I could tell, other than inside the L.A. Times, it was not noticed out here. Mm-hmm. It was really, really wild. This is from Andrew Hertz, David, I think, who has been watching some of the preseason NBA scrimmages. With no crowds, is there any home court advantage? With no crowds, how weird is the broadcast going to sound? I got to say, I watched a little Magic Clippers yesterday from the Orlando bubble or on TV from the Orlando bubble. Yeah, uh, it's a li- The visual's weird because you've got all this space around the court. No photographers under the hoop like mm-hmm. we're used to. None of the rich yeah. people sitting on the sidelines. But you know what? The full ambiance of the game sounded to me a lot like a regular season NBA game. Yeah, It'll be weird when that's the playoffs, but just for like Thursday night 76ers game that's just kind of on, I don't know. Didn't seem totally different. You're right. The visual of the fans is more significant than the, than the, the, the volume of the fans. And, uh, you know... I defer to Zach Cram about whether or not home court advantage is an actually existent thing, but like, uh, I don't, it doesn't seem to me like it's going to make a ton of difference. It might, in, you know, there, I'm sure some players will excel in relative silence, but, but I agree with you. I think it'll feel pretty similar. Semi related Morgan edge wants to know about fake noise at political conventions. Surely the GOP will have a canned four more years chant, but what will be this year's locker up? Can can noise help the poor mid-level politicians who always try to get the barely paying attention conventioneers to get a lame chant going? First of all, we should say that Trump canceled the convention this afternoon. Uh, there's <laughs> not going to be an in-person convention at all. But if this were to happen, it, I think it's much more interesting to ask. Like They couldn't get away with Locker Up, even in the era of Trump, right? You cannot record or fabricate the sound of a bunch of people yelling something that borderline or that offense. Or imagine the other thing. I mean, some of the other things that are chanted at Trump rallies that be chanted at this. You couldn't get away with recording and playing that the way you could get away with Trump sort of <laughs> absent-mindedly leading those leading the cheers. You know, I mean, wait. I, so there's a, there's a moral difference in running canned locker up. Yeah. Over real locker up. Yeah. Trump can't be just like listen. They chant whatever they want to. You know. I mean, they just got excited. <laughs> They just chanted the offensive thing somebody said on the platform. What, yeah, what, exactly. can, I, what exactly. can I do about this? This is from Kevin Fairley. As much as I love NPR, I find myself increasingly annoyed by this tick among certain reporters and hosts who always sound like they're smiling while speaking, even if what they are saying is grim, <laughs> which it often is. What is going on here? I think I understand this a little bit because there is... You and I are hardly audio professionals, as, as we prove twice a week on the press box. But there is this thing where you do have to sound a little more excited when you're recording something than you would be in real life, mm-hmm. just so you project out of the iPhone a little bit. 
And I think a lot of times that sort of melds into, I'm really happy about the horrible piece of news I'm relating on NPR. Is that a decent theory? (laughs) Yes. I mean, definitely when you're learning to do your job, uh, there people will say that just like, turn it up, turn it up, turn it up. You know I mean? And just like you become a sort of parody of yourself until you sort of find, I don't know, the key you're supposed to be speaking in. And then they're just like, yeah, do it like that. And then it's sort of, you, you, you bring it down, but yes, there is a sort of urgency. I, I cracked up when you, when I, when you just read that because I couldn't stop thinking of like the Joker. There seemed to be just some sort of like smiling through absolute horrors thing going on. But also I know exactly, I know exactly the voice that Kevin is talking about right? and that I would have never put a finger on it myself, but that is an incredible observation. And I will never be able to listen to NPR without imagining like, you know, Jack Nicholson's pancake white face. Uh, but then what uh, about here, Cesar here Romero on a surfboard? You know, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Brian Longton says, you've talked a lot on the show about the NBA bubble. Is it strange how comparably little play the NFL's plans for this season are getting? Do we think it'll start on time? Mm. That's sort of a big question. I was just listening to the radio, which is not something I have the opportunity to say very frequently. (laughs) And I heard, uh, I think it was, I think I heard Keyshawn Johnson on, I believe the Michael K show. And we should probably talk about, you have a Keyshawn Johnson segment in the not too distant future, I guess. But um, uh, he was saying, he said, made a really good point, which is that the, uh, NBA and the and MLB are going to be the I think he said the test dummies for uh, all sports going forward and yep. I think that a lot of the conversations we could have about the NFL and that the NFL is even having for itself are all going to be rendered moot by something that happens in one or both of those sports over the next uh, month so I'm not really sure what the conversation would be it is kind of glaring that it's not getting as much relative attention but you know, I kind of feel like by the time that they're ambling onto the field, a lot of the just uncertainty kinks will sort of be worked out. I could be wrong, though. Yeah. We had all those players tweeting almost in unison the other day, right? Trying to say, wait, wait, if we're going to test every day, why haven't we said we're going to test every day uh, when we go back for for preseason uh, for for what is now our sort of preseason period? Yeah, I, I, I do think there's an important distinction between the NFL is being quiet and the NFL doesn't know what it's doing, but there's a very highly likely chance that the NFL is being quiet because it is taking in as much as it can and not committing itself to anything, mm-hmm. which the NBA and major league baseball had to do just, just by virtue of starting earlier. But it is, it is fascinating. And trust me, the NFL will not be ignored when it comes back. If it has a bunch of COVID positives in, in training camp, that is going to be a gigantic story. Well, and listen, the one big thing that we don't know, I mean, that we're not going to know for, uh, presumably, that we'll know in the very near future is, and listen, scientists, doctors might might know this. We as a public, I don't think, are really aware of the ramifications of how this disease might spread if somebody gets tested positive after they've played a game with a bunch of people, like what the kind of human part, human aspect of it is. And that's going to be, that's going to hugely affect how the NFL, you know, how testing is done and how quarantining is done and everything else, especially in a sport where you're, you know, kind of spitting in each other's faces as a matter of course. This is from Hugh Hopkins. Even before the COVID-19 shutdown, places like Bleacher Report, The Athletic, and even The Ringer would occasionally do posts breaking down social media beef. And now there are in-depth articles about life inside the respective bubbles, all generated from Instagram pages and TikToks. This is content that has traditionally been the lifeblood of SB Nation team pages and international blogs like Double Clutch. But if the big boys are taking up that space, what should content look like on the different fan blogs? Is there a future for community coverage? 
That's kind of interesting. Ooh. That the social media beat, uh, because of the lack of access to the players, has moved over to the bigger websites. Huh. That's a really good point. That's a really good question. I mean, I think that there's a uh, sort of capitalist argument that, you know, these blogs have been doing it longer and and uh, my presumption is they are, they're probably doing it better. They're certainly doing it better. I, I can't imagine that, like, I as a writer could catch up to, like, the tempo of doing this on a daily basis and compete in any meaningful way um, with a blog like Double Clutch or whatever. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that every, I think that we've talked about this before, but it's just, it's so hard to grasp in general what media is going to look like through this season of sports. And I think that, you know, you can look at it from a bird's eye view like that, but I just think that even from the blogs all the way up to the, you know, the news desk at the biggest paper in the country, people are kind of going to be grasping at whatever they can and trying to figure out on the fly what works. I don't know. What do Mm -hmm. you think? No, I think, I think that's what it is. I think we, what's been so fascinating about the last four months is we, the sports media don't know what content is. Right. We just get to make it up every day. And, and it's kind of like, well, let's go let's see what works. Does some other random thing that happened 20 years ago work? Sure. And the great thing about or the great the great thing, <laughs> your mileage may vary, but the great thing about <laughs> about the amount about the, what's happened. I mean, the absence of sports is that we've had a lot of time to sit back and think and ponder what is going to happen We t- to write think pieces about TikToks and whatever else. And um and and, <laughs> my, and for, my, my mileage will definitely vary on that one. But, but no, but ahead. and for us to and and for us to have whole segments dedicated to like what will journalism look like next month or in that's two true. months or whatever. And that's not a luxury that we necessarily would have had. We would have probably been talking about, you know, the way well, that yeah, the way that the national media was covering Russell Westbrook and James Harden's friendship or something. You know, like we would we would have found other angles. So yeah, we're we're all kind of pay, maybe paying an inordinate, inordinate amount of attention to the sort of mechanics of it now, but that'll all change too. We'll squeeze in a couple more from Tongan Jami. Evergreen listener mail question. What Twitter joke formats do you wish media Twitter would retire already? <laughs> Is all of them a valid answer? Yeah. Do you have an answer for this? You don't do these, do you? No. Even when you were a Twitter person, you when weren't, you weren't doing it. You, yeah. You weren't doing the, the mad libs, you know, let me do the, let me do the joke format and do, do something funny within this. I mean, there were certainly times. I'm sure if you look back through my feed, you could find something if someone really wanted to canvas it. I mean, listen, a lot of the time I was tweeting about professional wrestling. So, uh, some, so more, if I ever did something like that, the joke was, was that applied to pro wrestling. Exactly. You know, it was sort of inherently self-referential, but anyway, we, we retire all of them. I don't care. <laughs> Finally, this is from Sal. Hey, big fan of the show. But if you don't bring back the David, in the beginning, I'm going to be forced to delete the press box from my app. I hope you understand. <laughs> I think this has been on my list, actually. I think we should bring it back next week. All right, let's do it. I'm down. I'm down. I just wasn't really. I, it wasn't even like an appropriate Did that actually say, so much did, as I wasn't up for it. Yeah. I mean, we took it out sort of in a, out of a, a you know abundance it would, of... It didn't feel appropriate, and also it just didn't feel like yeah. doing it. Sure. those types of American life. My, can I ask a quick question? Does, did, sure. his, did his question actually say, f- I'm deleting it from my app, or did he say a non-Spotify app that we were forced to delete? No, I, I read these straight out. All right. <laughs> how, All right. How, dare sure. <laughs> how dare you? How dare you, sir? Just the formulation of from my app seems seemed a little bit forced. I don't know. <laughs> there are no favorites played here. Excuse me. <laughs> All right, David, when we have a teammate as talented as Jordan Ritter Khan, Hell yeah. and when he writes a book... We got to talk to him about it. Here's our interview.
Jordan Ritter Khan has been a wonderfully aggravating teammate since we were together at Grantland. And by that, I mean Jordan will write a piece that is so finely observed and filled with his unique kind of writerly empathy that it makes the rest of us feel like we're doing something wrong. You know Jordan's ringer story about Brianna Taylor and his podcast about the Sonics leaving Seattle. This week, he has published a new book, The Road from Raqqa, a story of brotherhood, borders, and belonging. The New York Times calls it a resplendent love letter to an obliterated city, and I, Brian Curtis, say if you read the first chapter in a bookstore and aren't moved to buy the book, then lose my number. How are you, Jordan? Oh, man, I couldn't be better after that. Thank you, Brian. Uh, thrilled to be here. Let's do a little This Is Your Life before we talk about the book. What was your first job in journalism? Whew. Uh... When I was 19, I got a job at a now defunct paper called the Bradley News Weekly in Cleveland, Tennessee. Uh, and this was a paper that I guess now you would call it an alt weekly, but it was in a town so small that I, I, I had no idea what an alt weekly was back then. But it was like Cleveland, Tennessee is one of the most conservative towns in the country. It is kind of the home of the Church of God, which is this uh, massive Pentecostal denomination that kind of looms over everything. And the Bradley News Weekly at the time was this like liberal kind of bomb-throwing little newspaper uh, that gave me a chance when I was 19 to start writing there, covering, covering sports and politics and writing a terrible, terrible column and yeah, I started there and then uh, ended up working at the Chattanooga Times Free Press nearby after graduation, which felt like felt at the time like the big leagues. Uh, and that's kind of how I got started. And what did you want to be when you grew up at that point? Um, I, I didn't fully there. Were, you know, there were times I wanted to be Gary Smith, um, mm -hmm. I, the the legendary Sports Illustrated writer. Sure. Um, who uh, I, I remember reading his anthology and um, and thinking it was it was just yeah, full of stories that make you want to quit writing forever. They're so good. Um, and uh, you know, there there were times in college when I, I did um, I did really terrible impersonations of our, <laughs> our boss Bill Simmons uh, writing for oh, the college yes. paper as uh, as I think every college sports writer did in a, a certain era. Um, but you know, ultimately, I, I found that the stories that I really really loved and was really really drawn to uh, were kind of these long narrative feature stories, and and so finding ways to tell them. Um, whether in the world of sports or, or outside of it, uh, was, was very much kind of the, the path I wanted to go down. We shared an editor back at Grantland, Rafe Bartholomew, who was important to both of our careers, really important. And I was pleased to be reminded that your writing about the Syrian civil war began in the dying embers of Grantland. <laughs> How did you get onto this subject? Yeah. Um, so you may remember the month of October, 2015, um, stands out. <laughs> <laughs> Grantland was uh, on it on its very last legs, um, and the last thing that I did working at that website was Rafe. You know, basically, this was all Rafe. He, he just said to me, "Like, hey, I, I think I know you like to do this kind of stuff. I think if you can find a story um, related to the impacts of the Syrian civil war and find just the faintest sports connection." Uh, I think we can put together the money to send you over there. Um, and so I found one, I, I found a soccer team that was, um, kind of united and playing, um, like an anti-Assad and anti-regime national team for Syria. And I said, Hey, I have made contact with one or two of these people. Is that enough for, for me to go? 
uh, and it's, you know, Grantland was kind of like, uh, it felt like working in a toy store at times with all of the, <laughs> kind of the, the resources and the ways that like, it would, they would just be like, sure. Yeah. Go take, take a few weeks and, and how, however much you need in terms of the budget and, and do the story. And, and so that's what happened. Um, and I, I went over there and spent several weeks and, uh, and then got back and did, did a ton of reporting, talking to people affected by the war, both connected to sports and not. Um, and got back, and I, I think about a week after I got back was when when Grantland was shut down, and uh, and we were all kind of left figuring out what was next. Um, and I got kicked over to ESPN, the magazine, and and just really wanted to find a way. Like the only thing I cared about there was finding a way to finish the story. Mm-hmm. And it was during that process that I needed a translator near my home in Nashville. And uh, my wife, Beth, is connected to the man who's, um, was at the time the president of the Islamic Center of Nashville. And I, I asked him, you know, do you know anyone who could help with this? And he told me to drive out to this town called Hendersonville, which is a little northeast of here. And there is a restaurant there called Cafe Raka. And if you walk in, introduce yourself to the chef, he'll help you out. And... You know, I, I'd just gotten back from reporting in this part of the world, and Raqqa at that time was this city in Syria that was at the time known for being the, quote, de facto capital of ISIS. And I was just thinking, why is there a restaurant named after Raqqa in Hendersonville, Tennessee? And I got there and, and introduced myself to the chef, Riyadh Al-Qasim. And he was the single most, like just one of the most captivating, charismatic people I'd ever met in my entire life. And he helped me with the interviews and was incredibly kind and gracious. And then we talked about his own story and I just couldn't get it out of my mind. I, uh, I found myself thinking about his experience and his story of the reasons why he came to America, he fell in love with the United States from a college classroom in Aleppo. Um, the experiences he'd had here and the experiences that his family was going through back in Syria as they were kind of weighing and wrestling with this question of whether they should leave as as ISIS had overtaken their city. And so for months, I kind of couldn't get a story out of my mind. I kept thinking about it, going back to it. And uh, ultimately, it led to us talking about doing this book. So Riyadh serves as a translator for this ESPN story, which is about soccer, which you publish at ESPN. Then you come to The Ringer when we start in 2016, and you write about Riyadh and his experiences in America as a Syrian immigrant after the 2016 election, where Trump obviously gets elected president. When do you realize you have enough here for a book? Because I feel like as journalists, we hear great stories all the time. And there's always this question is, is this a long form piece? Is this a piece at all? Is this a book? When did you hit the latter point? You know, I, I thought, I thought there could be a book from really from the very first time I talked to him. Um, it, it was in my mind as a possible book from that moment. I later, you know, I think that that piece I wrote for The Ringer after the 2016 election, um, which you know, the day after the election, I went and sat with him and, and, and talked with him for hours. And, and that led to that story. That kind of led to kind of, I think, building the kind of trust that you need in, in order for, for a book to happen. And it, it also led me to just learning more about his family because the book is not just about one man's experience of immigration in America. It's about, it's about these two brothers. Um, and Riyadh's brother Bashar is his experience is, is very different. He, he chose the life that Riyadh left behind. He stayed in Syria, built a family, um, had a prominent career as a lawyer, 
uh, before ultimately being forced to leave. And, you know, without without that story, it, it wouldn't be enough. You know, it, it would be just a, a long feature and a long feature where you feel like, ah, I think there's more here, but not really fully a book. And I, I think it, once I had knew that there were these two stories, these two brothers who were connected, um, both of them captivating, that was when I thought, and that was when, you know, I, I would reach out to, I, I'd been having conversations with agents, um, you know, agents that will ask you, hey, do you have any book ideas? And uh, it, it was it was at the Their time that question. I had, Right, right. Um, and it was, it was at the, when I said there are these two brothers, when I, when I made it not just about this one man's experience, but but about both of them, that uh, it, it felt like other people thought, oh, yeah, like this, this there's really something here that this is definitely a book. So in this book, you're relying on both brothers' memories of very important parts of their life, most of which occur in Syria, uh, at least at the beginning of the book. It really reminded me of Tracy Kidder's book, Strength and What Remains, where he's writing about a man who came to America from Burundi and kind of reconstructing this life back home. You need those memories to be very specific, very descriptive. How do you go about drawing them out of those two brothers? Yeah. You know, I... It's it's talking a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, and and going going over stories again and again and again and again, and writing drafts and realizing there's not enough here. I, I, I need to go back. We need to fill in these details. And and part of that, you know, this this kind of speaks to some of the the journalistic questions that went into this. You know, as journalists, we're we're taught. Um, I, I certainly was taught in, in J school and in early jobs in my career to keep a distance from, from your sources. Um, you're, you're mm-hmm. taught time and again, uh, you are not their friend. Um, and, and that's a really tough thing to do. Um, a, a lot of times, especially, you know, at the ringer, I write a lot of stories that are about pretty traumatic moments in people's lives. And to feel like I have to keep that person at arm's length while I'm kind of, uh, telling the world about these, uh, intimate and difficult parts of their lives is, is a really tough thing to do and something I, I struggle with. And, and in this book, at some point early on, I realized that's just not going to happen here. Like these are, these are my friends. Um, like I, I'm, this is not a typical journalist source relationship. And, and so, you know, I've written for Re- Re- about Riyadh for the ringer. He's never read those pieces before they publish. Um, because that feels like you, you don't show, you don't show a piece to a source before you publish it. But with this book, the first thing I did after I wrote the first draft was go to his restaurant and for about two weeks, uh, night after night, would just sit there and read it out loud to him. And um, and that really helped in terms of just filling in extra details and, and scenes. Like there would be, uh, it would bring something up and he would be like, oh yeah, let me tell you about this that happened and this and this. Um, and then we, we would do uh, something similar with Bashar. With Bashar, it was more difficult because he... Um, you know, I, I don't speak Arabic. He does not speak much English. And so the, the interviews were always done through various forms of, of translation. But Riyadh was present for a lot of those interviews with him so that he could be kind of a, a part of that process as well. Uh, and, and so and all that to say, like bringing them into the storytelling process, allowing them a sense of agency and ownership over the story, which they did not use to say, like, I don't like this. It's unflattering. Um, please change it. Uh, they they instead used to say like oh let me give you these other details that I, I think really matter and, and so yeah that that was a conscious decision I had to make pretty early on. One thing that really struck me about the book too is your one of your big challenges, apart from reporting on scenes that you were not present at, 
was mm. explaining the Syrian civil war, which is incredibly complex, even for those of us who try to read news articles about it from time to time. Yeah. How did that, the complexity of the war, shape the way you thought about laying out the book? Yeah, it is. It's endlessly complex. Um, and, you know, I, I think one thing about this book is it is it is a it is a story about two brothers. It is not a uh, you know, it's rooted in the context of the Syrian civil war. And I, I worked hard to, uh, you know, make, make that context, um, give it the texture that it needs. But it, it's not a book that's going to uh, exhaustively explain explain the conflict because you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the writer for that book. Um, I, I'm the writer for this intimate true story. And, um, but in, in order to do that, you know, I, a few things, I mean, Hey, those, those trips that I took for Grantland and ESP in the magazine were tremendously helpful. in because so, so much of that time was just spent sitting and talking with people, um, at, at night and in, in their homes or in restaurants uh, about their experiences. These, these stories that will never you know, that I never wrote about for ESPN and that aren't in the book, but that uh, really helped shape my understanding of, of the conflict and, and meeting people there who were helpful with the book. You know, I had um, a, a friend who had been a translator for me while I was over there, who is, you know, you, the term we use as journalists is a fixer, but it, he's so much more than that. His name is Ahmed Ajuz. Um He is basically was a co-reporter with me on, on that story. And he now, he, you know, he's won an Emmy. Um, he, he lives in, lives in Germany. He, he read the book in advance to give me a, uh, you know, point out where I might be getting anything wrong. And, um, and so that, that was critical. Um, having, uh, you know, getting eyes on it from, uh, of people who, who understand the conflict more deeply than me early on, but it was, you know, it was a challenge finding, finding that balance and finding the right way to, to try to present it. The structure of the book too, I want to ask you a little bit about, because you began with Riyadh. This is the brother who's well-established in America in 2013, going back to Syria into a civil war. He lands in Turkey and he has this very nervy trip across the border. Why'd you want to open the book that way? Uh, probably just to, for, from a pure writerly point of view, just because I thought there was a lot of tension in it. Um, like I, I thought that moment was, uh, you know, you have this man who at that point had been in America for 23 years, who was an American citizen, um, who was married to a woman from Tennessee, who has uh, two sons who um, were both born here and and has this really nice life, has built a business. And um and yet he feels this deep, deep, deep pull back to the city of his birth in a moment in which that city is descending into pure chaos. Um, and in a moment when the family of his birth is uh, facing real, very real danger. And so Riyadh, without telling basically anyone except his most immediate family here in America, certainly without telling anyone in Syria, including his mother, and his brother makes the decision to get on a plane and go back and travel through, you know, through serious civil war to, to get to his childhood home to try to convince his family to leave. Um, and I, I just felt like that was a moment that I, I hope showed the stakes of what he was kind of wrestling with. And, uh, and that, you know, just a, purely as a, as a writer who wants to write scenes that are filled with tension that you hope draws a reader in, um, that felt like the moment that, that I hoped would do that. So writing books sounds romantic, but you've also got a day job. 
And you essentially, yeah. for some part of that, have to do two jobs at the same time. How do you, how do you manage that? Um, it was really hard. Uh, and th- th- there were times when, um, you know, th- th- there were times when I didn't know if I could do it. I, uh, you know, for, for the first, for the first while after I kind of got the book contract and was trying to write it, I just kept, I got, I had 18 months to write it and I kept telling myself, Oh, that's, that's plenty of time. 18 months. That's, that's fine. And then three months go by and, and that's down to 15 months and, and five months go by and, uh, and it's down a little less. And then it's like, Oh, I, I, I've really got to do this thing. Um, <laughs> kind of a shot clock, and, isn't it? You know? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you, you're just slowly watching it tick down, and uh, really, I mean, honestly, it was it was trying to trying to work on it almost every day throughout. But then for me, you know, and I, I'm sure every writer is different. There was a real sprint to the finish. Um, there was a there was a time near the end of the of the as I was the deadline was approaching, where I just had to basically decide that you know interpersonally, like my relationship with my wife matters. My relationship to anyone else does not matter. Like everything (laughs) else in life has to be just completely forgotten. And all I can focus on is, uh, doing what I need to do at the ringer. We were working on, um, we were starting to work on the podcast, Sonic Boom, right at, right at this time. Uh, and so I was working on that and finishing the book and completely ignoring everyone else. Um, and you know th- something about it, like now that it, that period is over, like I kind of romanticize it a little bit. Like there, there's something kind of like monastic about it. Like yeah. just who needs other people, the, right? Right. Just like pretending the outside world doesn't exist. Your own, all you're focusing on is working on these projects. Um, like the clarity of purpose uh, was was kind of nice, but also it was you know there there I spent a lot of time pacing around, wanting to vomit because I didn't know if I was going to get it all done. And functionally, is this happening? Like you setting an alarm for 4.45 in the morning? Are you doing this at night? Like when are you, are, are you sort of shaping these, these final pages? I, I would wake up, I would wake up at five and work on the book for, for a few hours. Uh, I, I'd like to, I like to write in, um, like 80 minute chunks. Uh, so I, I, I kind of like block out Twitter and everything else and, um, just try to, get what I can get done for 80 minutes, take a little break and then do it again. Um, and so I would do two of those 80 minute sessions early in the morning, then shift my, my focus to, um, to the podcast. And, uh, and fortunately at that time at the ringer, because I was doing the podcast, I, I was able to be pretty focused on that. So it was just like these two projects were, were the things that mattered. And, and then at the end of the day, after, after I'd, I'd wrapped that up, then I would go back and, and do two more kind of 80 minute sprints with the book. Um, until and I would go to bed really early, like around nine, um, and, and do it again the next day. And then on weekends, it was sun up to sundown, nothing but the book for for that period of time. Sean Fennessy and the uh, copy staff here at the Ringer will tell you I have trouble letting go of a twelve hundred word column. Like I'm <laughs> I'm futzing till midnight in the Google Doc, and then sending that email to the East Coast editor saying, ah, "Just two more things, if you could, before we before we get this up." That's a column. How does it feel to let go of a whole book? excruciating. Uh, mm. like I, I, you know, I, I sent my, I sent my editor, um, 
this is the first time I've done this. So I, there are all these like steps along the process where you, you don't really know if it's done yet. Um, (laughs) you're like, like, I'm not sure if I can ask for changes. And so I would send these emails like, Hey, are we still allowed to change things? They don't want you to know. They don't want you to, right? Exactly. They're they're trying to keep you in the dark. Uh, They're like, no, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry. Um, and so I, but I, there was one, like there was one basically a full paragraph that I wanted to change after the galleys had been printed. Um, so like the, the early versions of the book that go out to media, there was one full paragraph that I wanted to change. And I sent them this email, like begging for, for us to be able to change it. And I actually never followed up and never knew if they changed it until I got the final copy of the book. And I saw that they did, um, which was, which is a huge high relief. I'm not sure I wanted to know. Like I, I was terrified that the answer was right. no. And and then when I saw it, it was, it was a huge relief. But even now, like I've read since I've gotten final copy, I, I've reread it, and there are just all these little things. Where I'm like, ah oh, man, I, I wish I had, I wish I had changed that. Or, but um, ultimately, you know, the book exists as it is, and and I feel proud of it. But it's it's a uh, yeah, it's it's excruciating to to let something like that go. One more before we let you go, and this is kind of a where is your long form soul at right now question. Are you thinking, I can't wait to do another book? Or are you thinking, boy, a tidy 3,500-word piece or a bunch of tidy 3,500-word pieces sounds real great right now? Uh, I mean, kind of both. Um, I guess you should say the latter just for the ringer purpose. (laughs) We'll edit anything out that that, gets you in trouble. So that's okay. (laughs) Anyway, go ahead. No. I I, I mean, I love them both. I I, I love them all. Uh, I... You know, I, I love the stories I write for the, for the Ringer. I love the ways that I can follow my curiosity uh, down down a rabbit hole for a few weeks and and then do it again. Um, I also really loved the process of uh, sinking so deeply into into one story, and uh, you know, loved the experience of of doing the narrative pod and eager to do another one of those. Like. I don't know. It, it's all fun. Like every day, you, you know this as well as I do. Every day that we get to do this stuff for a living is uh, it's pretty great. Um, and and so yeah, my my heart's very much in all of it. The book is "The Road from Raqqa: A Story of Brotherhood, Borders, and Belonging." If you're not lucky enough to live near a cool indie bookstore like Parnassus, you can buy it wherever books are sold. Jordan Ritter Khan, thanks for being here, man. Thanks so much, Brian. All right, time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. Yay! Thank you, sir. Monday's headline about the plight of arcades during the coronavirus was Super Mario Bothers. <laughs> we got a vote for it's so Super. Bad. It's so terrible. Even a week later, it's just terrible. We had a vote for Super Mario Scrubbers mm. and also Donkey Gone, <laughs> which I know you'll appreciate. Today's headline comes from Mike David. It's from the Philadelphia Daily News. Uh, okay. It involves the arrest of one Ghislaine Maxwell. Mm-hmm. You know who Ghislaine Maxwell is. Associate friend of Jeffrey Epstein was recently arrested for a number of charges, including sex trafficking and enticement of minors. Now, the, the word we're looking for here is madam. Madam, and you'll also remember that her arrest was somewhat shocking and surprising when it went down on July 2nd. What was the Philadelphia Daily News's strained pun headline? Is it Madam or Madame? It's Madam. I think it's it's, it's definitely Madam. Okay, okay. Um, uh, Madam. uh, 
is it mad or like Adam? Like I'm trying to think of what this could possibly be. Um, just remember it happening very suddenly. That's that sort of should inform your your thinking here. Suddenly, uh, out of nowhere, um, oh, Madam. Madame Tussauds, Ma- uh, Madame, <laughs> Ma- I'm trying to think, I have no, Madame Butterfly, uh, Madame, uh, uh, getting better, feds, feds drop a, Madame Bomb, feds drop a Madame Bomb, that's great. Feds drop a Madam Bomb. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. We're back Monday. We have an interview with legendary sportscaster Diane K. Shaw. I can't wait to ask her about her career and what she made of the Washington football team story that ran in the post the other day. I'm also going to continue to be annoying, David, and ask listeners to please share this pod on social media. Say what you liked about it. Say what you didn't, as long as it involves David. Uh, we want to keep growing this thing, and we would be grateful. And if you do that, David and I will be back with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later.